Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, if you would... Please open up your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6, not 5, chapter 6. We're speeding right along, aren't we? Yeah, baby. If you don't have a Bible, if you're visiting with us today, we got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. Please feel free to stand up, grab one of those. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 6, let me review from last week, well, really for the past several weeks. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has been teaching us about two specific things within his Sermon on the Mount. He's taught us, number one, about right living. How, how do we live rightly according to God's principles? Um, scripture calls that righteousness. And then secondly, we're learning about hypocrisy. Hypocrites are people who wear masks. We talked a lot about that. Uh, they pretend to be somebody that they're not. And, and we learn that um, hypocrisy is an outward sin that covers up an inward sin. Last week, we, we saw Jesus gave his first illustration of both right living and hypocrisy. Uh, and he uses the illustration of money. A couple key points from last week, we said that financial hypocrites... What they do is they make a point of giving publicly when they could easily give privately. Number two, we said that our giving is an act of worship because our, our hearts are attached to our, our wallets, aren't they? Number three, we, we, we said that it's good to have a budget. We, we tell our money where to go through a budget. And the Lord Jesus also taught us how to give away our money, how to give we also applied some, really some systematic uh, Bible skills we learned from Scripture uh, and how Scripture teaches two ways to give financially. The first was to the church and the second was to the poor. Uh, when, you, when you give to the church, you get to decide what that amount is. Uh, and then Paul says you got to give it from a joyful heart. The Apostle Paul taught us that once that amount is determined, then you just give it systematically. You give that on an ongoing basis. When it comes to giving to the poor, we are to be wise. We are to be discerning. Scripture clearly tells us and repeatedly tells us that we are not to give to healthy beggars. And then finally, with all of our giving from last week, if we're going to err, let's err on the side of generosity. Because as children of God, we know that everything comes from Him. Uh, we will never be able to outgive God. So that's a brief review from, from last week. This morning, Jesus provides a, a second example of hypocrisy, and it deals with prayer. And let me give you a, a backstory on this week. Initially, I thought I would be teaching verses 5 through 8 today on, on how to pray, uh, all of that in one sermon. 
And then next week, I was planning on teaching verses 9 through 15, which is the Lord's Prayer. But that's not what's going to happen. The really cool thing, the exciting thing about God's Word is that, you know, when you study, you never know what you're going to find when you're seeking the truth like a buried treasure. And uh, one, of the, one of the keys to studying the Bible is not placing our opinion on the text. We don't want to do that. We want not to place anything on the text, but what we want to do instead is we want to pull the truth from the text itself. We want to pull the, the facts and the truth out of the text. Um, only when we slow down and really search for the details do we find the treasure. So studying the Bible, it's not only about Bible knowledge. It really is more about God's revelation because he's the one that reveals these amazing spiritual truths to us. Uh, the Holy Spirit reveals, he discloses, he brings light um, to the grace and the truth of his book. This is his word. And many times as I prepare, I really, I, I've got no idea where the Lord's leading here. Um, I've got no idea really where he wants me to place emphasis or priority or maybe the urgency of the message for that week. And I, I share that with you because this Sunday sermon, today's sermon really surprised me. Many times in my weekly music uh, meeting with the band, what we'll do is we'll read the passage uh, we'll pray through the passage, we'll talk about it, and then we ask the Lord to reveal the songs that he wants us to sing. We want the music and the words that we sing to prepare our hearts um, for God's word. The music really is a soundtrack for the scripture each week. The music helps the story of the overall narrative and it's only recently that I found out the band was placing bets on whether I could actually get through two verses or not. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think that's against HR policy around here. <laughs> well, this is one of those days, I got to tell you, because we're only going to get through the first three words of, of the first uh, verse. So let me give you the game plan of what's going to happen here. We're going to learn how to approach God in prayer today. Next Sunday, Jesus will provide specific examples of how and how not to pray. And then two weeks from today, Jesus will illustrate how to pray using the Lord's Prayer. And of course, I say all that and the band is already laughing, right? <laughs> we'll see. But regardless, we've got a mini-series on, on prayer, and this is really important because the great thing about prayer is that no matter where we are with the Lord, no, longer, no matter how long we've been a Christian, we've, we've always got more to learn about prayer. Um, there's always more to experience with the Lord on how to pray. I mean, prayer is mysterious, isn't it? How exactly does prayer work? If God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and we know that he does, Ephesians 1.11, well, wait a second, time out. Why do we need to pray? And if God has given us a free will, I mean, can we actually change anything that has been set forth in God's will if we pray? I mean, we're not puppets on a string. We're, we're not divine robots either. So we start to feel the tension about prayer. So 
Throughout this study, we're going to learn how God's sovereignty over here and human responsibility over there, they're, they're not at odds one, at one another. Not, they're not doing this. We're going to learn that when it comes to prayer, they are actually one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin. So with that lengthy introduction, if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Now, we just got done singing amazing words to these songs, and it occurred to me a few weeks ago that I, I want us to, as one body, as one church, to also read this text together. And I know this is something different for us, but if you would, please, uh, I know that people have different translations, uh, but if you would, look at the screens and, and read out loud the scripture passage with me, all right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Wait, verse 5. Back up, verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray. Truly I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray... And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things that you need before you ask them. Mm. Dear friends, this is the, the very words from the inerrant and the inspired, the infallible word of Almighty God. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, let's take a look here at verse 5. Jesus says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by people. Truly, they've already got their reward. Jesus says, whenever you pray, so let's pause right there. Let's start with a definition of prayer. There are many, many definitions of prayer. I'm going to give you three things to think about here. Key point number one is that prayer is communion. Prayer is companionship. Prayer is fellowship with Almighty God. Prayer is a communion. It's companionship. It is fellowship with God. So in other words... Prayer is a relationship. It's a two-way conversation. Key point number two. Prayer is the activity that God has ordained for his children to experience him. Prayer is the activity that God has ordained for his children to experience him. So prayer is not this man-made, superficial, psychological, or emotional tool that makes us feel better and yet accomplishes nothing. Prayer is ordained by God. He is the one who teaches us how to approach him in prayer. And then key point number three for us, prayer is the making of space to commune with God. Prayer is the making of space to commune with God. So in other words, prayer is not only a conversation, but it's a commitment. I mean, we are in charge of our schedules. 
It is our responsibility to, to make the space and to provide margin to pray. Notice how God is the central figure of all of our prayers and all of these definitions that we looked at. So an obvious question becomes, wait a second, who is God exactly? I mean, who or what are we praying to? And then secondly, how do we approach God in these prayers? I mean, what kind of communion, what kind of companionship, what kind of fellowship do we have with someone or something that we can't see? Prayer is mysterious. So let's dive in just a little bit deeper into that question. Scripture tells us that God, he is the supreme being. He is the creator of the universe. In the Old Testament, God is known by his personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh means to be. It means I am who I am. It means I am the self-existent one. Jesus just said, I am. I am the I am. And we see God in this very personal relationship with his people. We, we see it beginning in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. How personal that is. We see God again engaging Adam and Eve's sons. God is, is trying to lead and correct Cain and to build his character, but Cain, Cain is mad at God. We pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, Hey, Cain, why are you so mad? Why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But Cain, look, if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you got to learn to rule over it. See, God is trying to protect Cain from himself. We see this personal relationship again between God, Noah, and his family. God sees that the whole world is, is evil and God is a God of justice. So he decides to administer justice. He approaches Noah and he says this, Genesis chapter 6. He says, I have declared to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. And then out of God's mercy, God tells Noah how to build a big old boat to save him and his family while Noah preaches to everyone around him to repent. God didn't have to do that. We continue to see God engage with his people through this personal relationship with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, get away from your relatives, get away from your, your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you Look how personal this relationship is. Look at all the things that God says he's going to do for Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, Abram. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. 
We see God in a relationship with Abraham's son, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob. We see God in a relationship with Jacob's, with Jacob's 12 sons, who become the, the 12 tribes of Israel. We see the relationship between God and his people through Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was shepherding the flock of his, his father-in-law, Jethro. He's the priest of Midian. So these guys are worshiping the moon. Mind in his own business, right? Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, which is the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. So that is the Lord God Almighty. Moses looked and he saw that the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being burned. So Moses thought, hmm, I got to go over and look. I got to go check this out. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him. He said, Moses. Hey, Moses. Can you imagine Moses? Here I am. God says, don't come any closer. Remove those sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. See, it's with Moses where God makes a distinction with his personal relationship with his people. God says, I'm holy. God continued, he said, this is God introducing himself. He says, uh, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of, uh, of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So we see here that Moses... He was physically responding to God's holiness. He could not look at God. The New Testament provides more clarity of who God is by revealing that God is triune. The New Testament reveals that this divine being known as Yahweh in the Old Testament has three separate roles, each with their own being, with their own personality, and yet... He is still one God. So God is Father. God is Son. Um, God is the Holy Spirit, who is one divine being. And we see all three at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. But it's in the Gospels where God really, he reveals himself as a person. So now we can put a face with God's glorious name. So Jesus, as God, he, he comes from heaven to earth to specifically tell us how to approach God the Father and have a relationship with Him. Notice here that we do not approach God on our, on our own terms. Uh, we have several examples of those who did. The first example comes from when God ordains the priesthood in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 9. Aaron, he's the first priest. He's got two sons, Nadab and Abahu. They were also ordained as priests. Shortly after the ordination, this happens, and we pick it up in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abahu, they each took his own fire pan, and then they put fire in it, and then they placed some incense on it. So they're going to worship. And they presented this unauthorized, or your translation may say, this strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them to do. 
Verse 2, then, notice the consequence here, fire came down from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Dang. <laughs> All right. Why did they have to die? They died because they were mocking God's holiness. They were proud, and they were irreverent. God told them specifically how to come to them. They ignored those instructions, and they came to God, or they tried, on their own terms. We have a second example here of how not to approach the Lord. It comes from one of King David's soldiers. King David brought the ark of God back into Jerusalem after it had been captured in the war. Now, keep in mind, this ark doesn't only resemble God's presence. It is God's presence in the pages of the Old Testament. This Ark of, of God's Covenant, it's a long wooden box. It contained the Ten Commandments that was given to, to Moses. It also included manna from the Exodus, along with uh, Aaron's staff, his shepherd's staff. So we're going to pick up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 men in all, and he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God. Notice this, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between two cherubim. So they placed the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart. They carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel, they were celebrating. This is a festival. This is a party because the Lord is with them. So they're singing these songs. They're playing all these kinds of, of instruments. And in verse 6, but when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah, what he did is he reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Now pause there for one second. In other words, when the oxen tripped, the ark of God was about to fall off the cart, and it was about to hit the ground. So Uzzah, what he does is he reacts, and he prevents that from happening. He touches the ark. In other words, Uzzah touches the very presence of Almighty God. Verse 7, then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the, the ark of God. And once again, we think, dang, God overreacted. He was in a bad mood. <laughs> One commentator says this, it would have been better for the holy ark of God to touch the dirt because the dirt was holier than Uzzah. Dear friends, we struggle with this, don't we? We, we struggle with comprehend, comprehending God's holiness. We are inept in our humanness, in, in knowing the, the holiness of Almighty God and the sinfulness of our own sin. And that brings us to key point number four. What makes prayer prayer is that God is the one to whom you are speaking. What makes prayer, prayer, 
is that God is the one to whom you are speaking. So we want to make sure that we properly come to God through prayer. Scripture provides this overwhelming example of, of how to picture God as we pray. And these, I want to give you two pictures here. If, if, we, if we take these passages seriously, it will change our life. It will certainly change our prayer life. The first comes from Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. King Uzziah, he was the king of Judah for decades and decades. And at this time, Isaiah, he's, he's kind of freaking out uh, because he's dead. He doesn't know who's going to be the next king. Um, king Uzziah's reign, really, that was an era of national prosperity for the Jews. Uh, it, was, it was good. It was a good time for them. However... Uzziah, he got overconfident with himself, and he violated God's holiness, and because he violated God's holiness, God struck him with leprosy. Isaiah continues here, but he, that's the Lord, so the Lord is sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. So Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne in heaven. And that long robe, it symbolizes the Lord's majesty, his divinity. Back to verse 2. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they covered, or with two wings, they flew. Seraphim, uh, it means flame. So these are fiery, angelic beings. The six wings suggest that they have remarkable power. Moving to verse 3, and they were, they were calling out to one another. This could be a song. And what they were singing was this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is, is filled with his glory. So this holiness, it implies an absolute moral purity. Holiness means that there's an otherness to God. God is set apart, right? God's holiness is threefold. It is triune because God himself is triune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is radically different than us. And it's this kind of holiness that separates God from and above his creation. Verse 4, he says the, their voices, the seraphim's voices that shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with, with smoke. This scene is terrifying. It's, it's picturesque of Mount Sinai when, when God introduces himself to the Israelites. And then in verse 5, we see Isaiah respond here. <laughs> he says, uh, it's all over. I'm done. I'm a doomed man, for I am a sinful man. I, I've got filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. And yet, I've seen the king. I've seen God. So Isaiah, Isaiah, he sees God and he immediately confesses his sin. 
He confesses that he is not clean. He is not pure. He is not right. And there's no way in the world that he should be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. He should not be there. We fast forward to the book of Revelation. Jesus gives the apostle John a peek into the throne room of God, similar to Isaiah. However, scripture reveals a a picture that's clearer. This is what John sees in in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 2. John says, immediately, I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. All right, that sounds familiar. Verse 3, the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, and there was a rainbow that had the appearance of of an emerald, and it surrounded the entire throne. So jasper and carnelian stones, they signify the splendor, the majesty, the the glory of God, the rainbow there that emphasizes that this person who is seated on this throne is surrounded by these amazing colors, these supernatural, these brilliant, radiant, luminous colors. Verse 4, John continues here, he says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on those thrones sat 24 elders, and they, they, were, they were wearing white, and they had golden crowns on their heads, and flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. So once again, sounds very familiar to Isaiah's account uh, of Isaiah 6, and also uh, the Mount Sinai narrative. Now, by the way, Have you personally been in a thunderstorm or in a hurricane or in an earthquake to where you thought you were going to die? That's the visual here. He continues. He says, there's seven fiery torches that are burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. These torches, they are fierce, they are hot, and they are bright because light and fire represent truth. That seven spirits of God there, a little bit hard to translate. Uh, Going back to the prophet Isaiah, he refers to this sevenfold representation of the Holy Spirit as characteristics of God himself. And he goes on to talk about wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, reverence, and and how God is a deity. Uh, John continues here. He says something, something like a sea of glass. It was, it was similar to crystal. It was also before the throne. And then there were there's four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back, and, and, and they were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. It, it was like a lion. It wasn't a lion. It, it resembled a lion. He doesn't even have words to explain what he's saying. He says, the second living creature, it was like an ox. It wasn't an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. But it wasn't a man. It was really creepy. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle, but once again, it was not. And each of the four living creatures, guess what? They had six wings. And they were covered with eyes around and inside. Man, Steven Spielberg's got nothing on John. (laughs) 
These creatures were covered with eyes. Nothing gets past them. They see everything happening around God's throne. So in other words, one, one commentator said this, they are God's perfect war machines. Now, these could be the seraphim that were mentioned in, in Isaiah's account. They do have six wings, and they say something similar. Look, look here in verse 8. Day and night, these creatures, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God, he is the Almighty who was, and he is, and he's coming back. He is to come. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God, he is the almighty who was, that's the past. Who is, that's the present, that's right now. And who is to come, that's the future. Can you imagine? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to one seated on the throne... The one who, by the way, he lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, look what they do. Look, look what they do with their physical posture here. They fall down before the one who is seated on the throne and they worship him. Amen. They worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the one and they say this. Verse 2, our Lord and our God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So it's only now <laughs> with that detour, right? With all that background of what's going on within the throne room of heaven, let's now get back to, to Matthew's gospel. Because Jesus says this, and Jesus, by the way, who was, and he is, and he's coming again. He's the one sitting on that throne. He says this, whenever you pray, whenever you pray, dear friends, you are spiritually walking into God's throne room in heaven. The prophet Isaiah, the apostle John, they give testimony to what's happening behind the scenes as we pray. Now, let me ask you a question. Can anyone just barge on into the throne room of God and start demanding things from the Almighty? Our brother Job demanded a few things from God. Let's turn to see how that worked out for him. Because this conversation between God and Job is one of the most fascinating and yet humiliating in all of Scripture. We got a lot to learn from our brother Job here on what not to do. Job was mad at God. He demanded his rights. <laughs> so God begins this conversation by asking this question. Job 38.2. He says, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. Now let's pause. How, uh, how, how big a lump do you think was in his throat? How deep was the pit in his stomach? 
God goes on to say, because I've got some questions for you, and guess what? You, you got to answer them. He says, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions, and who stretched out that surveying line? Hey, Job, what supports its foundations? Who laid the cornerstone? Hey, Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Have you ever done that? Have you ever caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you ever made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Hey, Job, do you realize the extent of the earth? I mean, tell me about it if you know. I'm curious where, where light comes from, Job. Where, where does darkness go? But of course, you know all of this. I mean, you were born before it was all created. You are so very experienced. And then the Lord, or I'm sorry. Yeah, the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have any of these answers? And then Job said, well, okay, I am nothing. How, how, how could I ever find these answers? I'm going to cover my mouth. <laughs> I, I've, I've said too much already. I've got nothing more to say. Now, we would think it's the end of the conversation. Not with, Job, not with the Lord. The Lord goes on to say, Brace yourself like a man, Job. I've got some questions for you, and once again, you must answer them. And then the Lord goes on, and he asks Job another 50 questions that he cannot answer. After those 50 questions, Job said this to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do anything. I know that nobody can stop you. You asked, who, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's me. It's I. And, and I was talking about things that I do nothing about. Things that are too wonderful for me. See, I, I, I had only heard about you before. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. I'm taking back everything that I said. And I'm going to sit here in dust and ashes and show my repentance. In other words, please, God, don't call down fire from heaven. <laughs> now, aren't you glad that Job had that conversation with God and not you? So let me ask you again. Can anyone walk into the presence of God through prayer and just start talking at him and demanding for stuff? So the question is, who can? Who has the privilege, and it really is a privilege, of praying? In other words, who has the privilege of entering the throne room of God and standing in his presence spiritually? Scripture tells us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We 
we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. How? Through the blood of Jesus. Amen. The question is, who's we? Who's we? Dear friends, the only way to pray and for your prayers to be heard by the one true living God is through a blood-stained cross and an empty grave. That's the only way. There is no other way. Some people think that that way is unfair. However, the alternative is no way at all. I mean, the alternative is God giving us what we deserve. And what we deserve is an eternity in a very real place called hell. And that very real place is filled with God's justice for sin. And yet, God did not provide, he did provide one way. Where his justice was carried out on his son so that you and I can have eternal life and not eternal death. So this week as you pray, I hope that we all pause and we take a, a deep breath before we enter the throne room of God. I, I hope that today's text reveals the holiness of, of God in a new way. And, and really it gives us a deeper respect and a reverence as we approach our Lord our God, our King, our Savior, He is our everything. And now that we have a better understanding of, of who God is, a better appreciation of who we're, we're talking to, next week Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. So Father in heaven, we want to take these words to our hearts right now. We just want to continue to calm our hearts and truly think about what's going on in the throne room of heaven. And Father, I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation for what's going on spiritually around us. And that this week as we pray, we would think about those texts. And that we would come to revere you and honor you and glorify you at a much deeper level. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.